0: The year was 1115, and a most unusual army was amassing on the Appoman Plateau in Syria. A host of Frankish knights, led by Roger, Prince of Antioch, and Baldwin, Count of Edessa, were joined by a force five times their size, led by the Turkmen Atabeg of Damascus, Tukhtikin, and his son in law, the Emir of Mardin, Ilgazi. Some weeks later, they were joined by Baldwin I, King of Jerusalem, and Ponts count of Tripoli. These men represented the most powerful forces in the Levant, and they were joining together to defend their territories from outsiders. Throughout the summer, the Frankish-Turkish forces intermingled, holding the line against the forces of Bursuk, the Turkmen commander sent by the Seljuk Sultan Muhammad. One has to wonder if Bursuk was surprised when his expedition to expel the infidel Franks was blocked by not only the Franks themselves, but by his fellow Turkmen. Just two decades prior, the entirety of Syria had been under the control of the Seljuk Sultan. But that was no longer true. Whatever loyalty the Sultan in Isfahan could expect from his subjects in the Levant had died in 1092, along with the last truly great Seljuk Sultan, Malik Shah. Hello, and welcome to History of the Uchmer, episode 1.14, The Disorder of the Realm. You may notice the audio might sound a little bit different. Uh, Last year, my microphone preamp sort of burned out and added an annoying buzz to everything I recorded, which is faintly audible in previous episodes. Due to COVID, I couldn't get my hands on a good replacement, but now I've basically replaced the whole setup. So the audio should be sounding cleaner from now on. And before we get into it, two quick corrections. One is a goof from episode 1.12 when I mentioned that the Komnenoi are the penultimate Byzantine dynasty. There are actually two more. I, like most people, try my best to forget about the Angeloi. The second was perhaps a bit bigger, from the opening of episode 1.11 when I portrayed Kilij Arslan as leading the forces that crushed the Peasants' Crusade. I think this might have been my misreading of the sources that described Kilij Arslan's army but not necessarily his actual participation. I have another source that states more clearly that Kilij Arslan's brother, Davud, was the commander on that expedition, and that Kilij was busy elsewhere, which, given later events, actually makes more sense to me. So, today, we'll be covering what is often considered the height of the great Seljuk Empire under the great sultan, Malik Shah, and his powerful vizier, Nizam al mulk we'll be focusing mostly on how the western periphery of the empire slowly developed and became more and more independent from the great sultan. A situation that will culminate into a full-on free-for-all in the decade after 1092, following the death of both the vizier and the sultan. A decade which coincides perfectly with the arrival of the crusaders and the first baby steps of the Utramer states. It's pretty common knowledge that Muslim disunity was what allowed the crusaders to slip in through the cracks, but the disunity wasn't just crucial for the success of the first crusade, it was essential for the survival of the Uchmer states. As we saw in the opening, the whole of Syria-Palestine was eager to shrug off the yoke of the great sultan, and it was with not only their lack of internal cooperation, but sometimes their aid, that the Uchmer states were able to survive their precarious infancy. Today, what we'll be exploring is how that break with the Great Sultan came to pass. Let's get into it. Last time we were in the lands of the Seljuks, Alp Arslan was getting himself killed in rather ridiculous fashion, thanks to his habit of meeting his high-profile captives in person. According to the sources, one of his enemies used this opportunity to attack the Great Sultan. The Great Sultan then decided to face his attacker head-on, and got himself killed. That's how the story goes, at least. Luckily enough, al had a son, Malik Shah, who at the time of his father's death was either 17 or 18. Damn you, contradictory sources. Now, either way, Malik Shah was clearly not a child. However, it was still a tall order to expect that he just take over for his old man. As we've clearly established by now, the Seljuk royal house was a cutthroat environment, where loyalty was in short supply. Case in point, pretty much as soon as Malik Shah took the throne, his uncle, al brother, Kavurt went into revolt. This was not Kavurt's first attempt at sedition either. Back in the 1060s, he'd stopped including al name on minted coins and in the Friday prayers, the Koopa. al and his rebellious brother had skirmished on and off throughout the Great Sultan's reign, and in this moment of transition, Kavurt saw an opening, and took it, claiming the title of Great Sultan for himself. He wrote to Malik Shah, saying, I am the elder brother, while you are but a young son. I am more worthy of the inheritance of my brother, the Sultan al-Barcelan, than you. This was how things had worked for the Seljuks before. Malik Shah's grandfather, Chagri, and his great-uncle, Tugrul, had only come to power after the death of their elder brother, Israel, even though Israel had a son, Qutlumush. But things were changing in the Seljuk empire, and those brother ties didn't mean quite what they used to. In 1073, Malik Shah was finally able to defeat his uncle, and Kavert was executed in the traditional method for those of royal blood, choked to death with a bowstring. The controversial decision to execute Kavert was probably thanks to the great sultan's vizier, Nizam al-Mulk, the Order of the Realm. Nizam al-Mulk was one of the Persian-style administrators who'd been carried along with the flood of the Seljuk conquest. He'd just traded his Ghaznavid ID badge for some Seljuk swag and signed up to serve as a bureaucrat. Nizam al-Mulk had first served under al Arslan, and though apparently they'd had a frosty relationship at times, he'd been a useful administrator, and during the first few years of Malik Shah's rule, he was so vital and such a powerful figure that some sources refer to this period as Adawla al-Nizamiyya the Nizam state. I may be wrong about this, but as far as I can tell, Nizam al-Mulk was also the first Atabeg of the Seljuk Empire. Though the concept wasn't new and was possibly inherited from Ogu's Turk traditions, it seems this is the first time it was being used in the Seljuk Empire, though there are some sources that state that all Barcelona had an Atabeg. So, what is an Atabeg? Well, the Turkic title, Atabeg, translated into Arabic as Atabak is composed of the Turkic words for father, ata, and ruler, beg, or bey, as it's pronounced in modern Turkish. A father ruler, then, was somebody who assumed the role of father to the rightful ruler. They were usually a highly trusted advisor that ruled for a child sovereign. Now, I said child sovereign, and I'll remind you that Malik Shah was no child. He was in his late teens, and before long, Malik Shah seemed to grow resentful of the control Nizam al-Mulk wielded. In the years immediately following the death of Al-Barslan, Nizam al-Mulk had gone to great lengths to remove any possible threats to his position. At first, his desire for advancement lined up nicely with Malik Shah's own ambitions, even if they went against Seljuk tradition. For example, Nizam al-Mulk was responsible for the murder of Malik Shah's aunt, Gawar Katun, who commanded the loyalty of a sizable Turkmen force. And though the execution of Kavrt may seem logical to us, after all, he was a rebel... It did not fit into Turkmen custom. See, steppe tradition preferred a succession policy of tanistry over one of primogeniture. This system of tanistry basically held that after the death of a ruler, any male line heir of the ruling dynasty that could assert their right to rule was a legitimate ruler. Unlike Irish tanistry, which tended towards elections, steppe tanistry was a bit more violent. And it basically demanded that all eligible candidates duke it out for control. This wasn't just an act of seizing power, it was by defeating all of the candidates that the winner became legitimate, proving that they were a capable leader. This was connected to the idea that power in the Seljuk Empire was not vested directly in the ruler, but rather in the Seljuk dynasty as a whole, with the Sultan just the senior member of the family. We explore this idea at length in episode 11 particularly in the story of how one of Kutlumush's sons was used by the Turkmen Shukli as a source of legitimacy to make an attempt at crushing his rival, the warlord, Atziz. All of this meant that there was a good deal of leniency shown to rebellious Seljuks. After all, they weren't betraying the state by rebelling, they were asserting their right. So Ibrahim Yinal was only executed after three attempts of sedition. He was pardoned for the first two. And when Seljuks were executed, it was done without spilling their blood by strangling them with a the bowstring. I'm gonna keep mentioning that. Another important step custom was the division of the realm into two parts, an eastern and a western half. Upon their death, multiple sultans seemed to have intended for the Seljuk empire to continue along the divide that had been agreed upon by Tugrul and Chagri at the birth of the empire. Al-Barslan had inherited his father Chagri's land in the east, and Tughril had intended for al younger brother Suleiman to inherit the western portion. But al had removed his brother and taken control of the entire empire for himself. Still, upon his own death, Al-Barslan had intended for his rebellious brother Kavart to remain in control of the eastern half, and for his son Malik Shah to take the western half. However, Kavart had decided to press for the entire thing and ended up losing. Per tradition, Covert should have been left to rule his eastern half, having lost in his bid to take the entire empire, which, after all, was his right. Covert had even begged Malik Shah to adhere to this tradition. He wrote to his nephew, quote, Do not destroy this house by killing me and listening to the bureaucrats as to what to do with me. Do with me what is fitting for Turks, and I will give you the like of what you lost when your father died. I will go to Syria and Egypt, and I shall surrender my whole land to you. End quote. By bureaucrats, Covert was referring to one bureaucrat in particular, Nizam al-Mulk. Yet, Malik Shah did not do what is fitting for Turks. Instead, he had Covert executed. This actually alienated many of the Turkmen, and Malik Shah was forced to turn to his Atabeg for help. Nizam al-Mulk was able to buy off the Turkmen, but it is notable that Malik Shah's army at this point relied much more on Kurdish and Arab forces than the steppe horse archers who had won the empire for his great-uncle Tugrul. We can see Malik Shah's Seljuk empire becoming much more heterogeneous, probably under the influence of Nizam al-Mulk, who was, after all, a vizier in the Persian mold and couldn't care less about steppe tradition. This type of governance that drew on native forces to form the mass of the military meant that locals had to be respected to a greater degree. Which is probably what led to Malik Shah's positive portrayal by the Armenian Christian Matthew of Edessa. If you recall from the opening to episode 1.4, this Sultan's heart was filled with benevolence, gentleness, and compassion for the Christians. He showed fatherly affection for all the inhabitants of the lands. As well as abandoning more traditional steppe traditions and sidelighting the Turkmen in favor of locals, the dual rule of Malik Shah and Nizam al mulk showed other signs of being focused on consolidation, to the detriment of conquest. One quick detail to illustrate this is that while al Arslan spent only one year of his rule in the capital, Isfahan, Malik Shah spent over half his rule there, hunting and throwing great banquets. Which is why it's surprising that on paper, the great Seljuk Empire saw immense growth during this time. Again, way back in episode 1.4, I quoted Matthew Vadesa saying of Malik Shah's reign, The Sultan's empire extended from the Caspian to the Mediterranean seas. Malik Shah subdued all the states on this side of the Mediterranean, and there was no land which did not submit to his rule. And while it is true that the nominal borders of the Great Seljuk Empire expanded greatly during this reign, the degree to which Malik Shah actually ruled in these territories is questionable. If you look up a map of the empire under his rule, for example, the map included on the Wikipedia page for the Great Seljuk Empire, you'll probably see an enormous blob, including not only Persia and Mesopotamia, but regions such as Syria and most of Anatolia. I have of course included a map of this kind on the website, historyoftheutrimer.wordpress.com. However, the region corresponding to the Sultanate of Rum in Anatolia, was more firmly under the control of Suleiman ibn Kutlamush, who, for most of his rule, was really a Roman ally or even client state, than a vassal of Malik Shah. He wasn't the only Turkmen in Asia Minor either. Along the Aegean coast, the Turkmen ruler Chaka reigned in the region of Smyrna, modern Izmir, and presented a huge threat to the Romans in Constantinople, by the way. And to the east, in the region of Armenia, were the Danishmen's. The Danishmend will be another of the big bosses during the First Crusade, and it's in the post-Manzigar period that they make their first appearance. This appearance is shrouded in mystery, specifically the mystery of its founder, a character known to us as Danishmend Gazi. Most of what we know about Danishmend Gazi is from a 13th century Turkish epic called the Danismund Name, basically the tale of Danishment. This account is not particularly historical, and the character of Danishmend is conflated with other famous figures. Both his name and the epic tale highlight a particular aspect of Danishmend, that of his role as a Ghazi. Now, we'll be delving a bit deeper into the concept of holy war in the future, but for now, we'll just define that term Gazi. A Ghazi is someone who practices Gaza. Gaza is a type of holy war that, very loosely defined, focuses on raiding and extracting wealth from the infidel. The term Gaza is specifically Muslim, but this type of religiously sanctioned, prophet-oriented behavior was typical throughout the medieval Mediterranean. If you think back to episode 1.9, the Pisan and Genoese sack of Medea is a pretty good example of what Gaza was like. Lines like, Saracens and captives were led away without number, all gifts for you, Jesus, without doubt. And the fact that they used their blood-soaked coin to build a church were very in line with Gaza. Gaza is a big part of the story of Turkish Anatolia, so stories like the Danishmund Gaza reinforce the role of Gaza and Gaza-like behavior in the 11th century. Another aspect that stands out about the representation of Danishmund in this epic was his propensity to welcome converted Christians. His inner circle was full of converts, which maybe coincides with Danishman's possible origins as an Armenian convert to Islam. This is what Michael the Syrian presents as his origin, at least. And the territory he operated in was within the region of Greater Armenia, so it's definitely possible. Yet, other sources indicate that he was a Turkmen who fought under Alp Arslan at Manzikert and stuck around after the battle. However, the theory that Danishman Ghazi was an Armenian is backed up by the fact that he seemed very in tune with Roman practices. The coins that the Danishman state minted were in Greek, and he often presented himself as the king of the east positioning himself in a way that made sense to Greeks and Armenians accustomed to their position as the easternmost provinces of the Roman Empire, not as the westernmost portion of an advancing Turkmen sultanate. If you check the map of the Great Seljuk Empire, you'll see that only the region corresponding to the Danishman land is not included. But to present rulers like Chaka or even Suleiman as fully incorporated to the empire is a bit of a stretch, Sure, Suleiman presented himself as a loyal vassal of Malik Shah's in the 1080s when he took Antioch, but this was more likely than not a ploy to avoid conflict. I doubt Suleiman was regularly paying taxes, or would have remained loyal to Malik Shah if a better option had come along. And following Suleiman's death, Malik Shah was unable to firmly establish control over any of the Anatolian Turkmen, who he didn't really seem to regard as his subjects at all. Anna Komnini says the great sultan even offered to ally with the Roman emperor to remove the Turkmen from Anatolia and return the provinces to Alexios. Supposedly, this alliance was to be cemented by the marriage of our historian princess friend, Anna, and Malik Shah's son. Anna, of course, states that her father would never have married her to an infidel, which, uh, maybe not, but who knows. Though the proposed Seljuk-Komnino alliance against the Turkmen of Anatolia never came to pass, it was perhaps this possible plan that kept Alexios from getting too involved in Asia Minor. It wasn't until after Malik Shah's death that he started to put the gears of the First Crusade into motion. Maybe if things had worked out with Malik Shah, he wouldn't have even bothered to ask for Frankish aid. Though again, who knows? Anatolia wasn't the only region where the Seljuk Empire appeared to grow. Various Turkmen potentates also took advantage of the weakened Fatimid state to establish control over chunks of Syria-Palestine. Often, these were the same folks as were taking advantage of the Romans in Asia Minor. We've met the most successful of these mini-conquerors a few times now, Atziz. Atiz ibn Uwak al-Gwarizmi is a bit of a mystery. His name, Atsis, has been deciphered as possibly meaning horseless which, if true, hints at humble origins in Khwarasm, the oasis region south of the Aral Sea. Nevertheless, he later married one of Al-Barslan's daughters, so he either had some nobility in his background, or this was a true rags-to-riches story. What we do know about him is that he was a commander of Nawakia forces, like Eriskan, who defected to the Roman Empire, and Suleiman ibn Kutlimush, first sultan of Rome. As I mentioned way back in episode 1.6, it's not really clear who the Nawakia were. They might have been connected to the Irakia, Turkmen forces who had raided Iraq while the Seljuks were still in Persia, but they might have also contained local Arab, Kurdish, or Armenian recruits. What's clear is that they, like the Irakia before them, made their living at the western edge of the Seljuk Empire, raiding into Anatolia and the Levant. Back in episode 1.8, I mention how Badr al-Jamali had written to Atsiz inviting him to attack some of his enemies within the Fatimid Caliphate. After Atsiz's success, he wrote to Badr al-Jamali, asking to be paid for his work. Badr al-Jamali refused, stating that Atsiz should be content with the money he had looted. It's unlikely this alliance would have worked out even if Badr al-Jamali had paid up. Atsiz wasn't going to be playing second fiddle to anyone, and in the end, he preferred to remain at least somewhat attached to Malik Shah. Now, Atsis' relationship with Malik Shah is also difficult to suss out. Some have claimed that Atsis conquered southern Palestine all on his lonesome, and others have portrayed him as just the commander carrying out Malik Shah's orders. After having read a few different sources, I fall a bit in the middle, but leaning more towards the first interpretation. Atsis was clearly independently minded, as shown by the fact that he dealt with Bar al-Jamali at all, but he did benefit from some sort of loyalty to the Seljuks, so he paid tax to the great sultan. But it was clear he intended to keep real power for himself. By 1072, he had taken not only Jerusalem, Ramla, and Jaffa, but the most powerful city of the region, Damascus, which he made his capital. He also changed the Friday prayers to honor the Abbasid Caliph, replacing the Fatimid Caliph. In 1074, Aziz got into it with Shukli, an event we covered back in episode 1.11. Despite Shukli's alliance with one of the sons of Kutlumush and the Fatimids, Atsis was still able to defeat him, and it was around this time he started to make plans to invade Egypt. In 1076, Bar al-Jamali was still occupied dealing with the catastrophic events of the famine and civil war we covered in episode 1.8, so Atsis felt the moment was right to strike. He invaded and sacked Cairo. A poem written by a Jewish resident of the city describes the event in the following way. They entered Fustat robbed and murdered and ravished and pillaged the storehouses. They were a strange and cruel people, girt with garments of many colors, armed and officered and capped with helmets, black and red. They trumpet like elephants and roar as the roaring ocean. They are mingled of Armenians, Arabs and Edomites, Greek and Germans, Paphlagonians and Turks. They laid waste the cities, and they were made desolate. They expected to reign in Fustat, but their eyes were blinded. The hosts of Ali conquered them. End quote. By Fustat, he's referring to Cairo. And by the hosts of Ali, he's referring to the Shia, that is, the Fatimids. What's interesting to me is the description of Atsis' forces, which may just be describing what a Nawakia force either was or at least seemed like to a Jewish Egyptian. The reference to Germans probably just means that Atzis had some franks with him. Not that surprising, given the ties between Franks like Roussel de Bayoul and the Nawakia of Anatolia. Despite Atsis' success taking Cairo, not long after, he was defeated by a force put together by Badr al-Jamali, who'd even pressed some pilgrims on their way to Mecca into his army. To make matters worse, it was around this time that Malik Shah decided to withdraw support from Atsis and give all of the territory in Syria-Palestine to his brother, Tutush. In doing this, Malik Shah was probably motivated by a few factors. Atsis's growing independence was definitely a key one, and the choice to replace him with Tutush specifically was likely fueled by a desire to get his baby brother out of the Seljuk heartland and keep him busy in the periphery. The timeline is a bit muddled, so it's unclear to me if Malik Shah's decision to replace Atzis was made before or after the failed Egyptian expedition. What is clear is that after the expedition, Atsis' forces were spent, and when he returned to Palestine, Jerusalem, Ramla, and Gaza were all in revolt. Atsis' wife and family had been in Jerusalem, and the residents there enslaved them. Only Damascus remained loyal, for which they received a tax break. The rebellious cities, though wouldn't be quite so lucky. Atsis was able to bring in some Nawakia reinforcements from Anatolia, and with them, he retook his cities and put the residents to the sword. In Jerusalem, I guess after rescuing his family from slavery, he slaughtered both the Muslim and Jewish residents of the city, leaving only the Christian population alive, likely because they'd been the only sector to not revolt. While killing pretty much anyone he could get his hands on, He was also pleading with Malik Shah to reconsider and recall his brother. No dice, though. In 1078, Tutush arrived in northern Syria. Atziz wasn't the only thing on his to-do list, though. He also had his eye on taking the northern Syrian cities, still under the rule of local Arab rulers. So he set about besieging Aleppo, at this time still under the control of the Mirdasids who have mentioned before, they're that dynasty that had for so long flip-flopped between the Romans and the Fatimids. While camped outside Aleppo, Tutush received a desperate message from Atsis. Badr al-Jamali had smelled blood in the water, and he'd quickly put together a force to head into southern Palestine and reconquer the Fatimids' lost territory. In 1078 and 1079, his army made it to Damascus and surrounded the city. Atziz was in no shape to hold his own against the Egyptians. And so he wrote to Tutush, asking for backup. Tutush gathered his army and headed south. He chased off the Fatimids, and even though Atzis surrendered Damascus, the Seljuk prince had Atsis strangled with a bowstring. Well, at least he showed the Turkmen warlord some respect and avoided spilling his blood. Tutush ibn al barslan was now the preeminent force in all of Syria-Palestine. Bilad al-Sham in Arabic, the left-hand lands. And unsurprisingly, it was around this time that his relationship with the great sultan Malik Shah began to deteriorate. The first signs of this were an event concerning Aleppo. The city had for decades been under the control of the Mirdasids, like I mentioned. Now, Tutush threatened to take their capital, Aleppo, from them. So they made contact with the neighboring ruler of Mosul, Sharaf ad dawla We've met Sharaf before in episode 1.11. At that time, I described him as ruler of Aleppo. Well, this is how he got the job. The Mirdasids gave Aleppo over to Sharaf, rather than let Tutush take it. Sharaf stood a better chance of protecting the city from the Seljuk prince, because he had an in with the great sultan. He was married to Malik Shah's aunt. Despite this loose familial tie, it's still surprising that Malik Shah acknowledged Sharaf's right to rule in Aleppo, instead of favoring his brother, Tutush. Still, that's what he did, likely to avoid his baby brother getting too powerful. Duchus was probably pissed as fuck, uh, but he took his brother's decision in stride and began to focus on establishing control to the west, over the cities along the Levantine coast that were still under Fatimid dominion. The Fatimids didn't take this aggression lying down, and they struck up a deal with Sharaf, who, surprise, surprise, was a Shia. With Fatimid aid, Sharaf attacked Damascus. Though this assault didn't pay off, The mere fact that there had been an attempt of this kind was enough to make Tutush a bit nervous. He was basically surrounded by enemies. This wouldn't do. So he reached out to Badr al-Jamali, offering to marry the vizier's daughter. Now, let's take stock of this event for a second. Tutush, a Sunni Seljuk prince, was willing to marry the daughter of the de facto head of the Shia caliphate. Sunni-Shia relationships are often blamed for Muslim disunity in the face of the crusaders, And it is true that sectarian divisions made alliances harder, but the example of Tutush and Shukli clearly show that the Turkmen were willing to work with the Fatimids. What no one was willing to do was sacrifice their own self-interest in favor of solidarity. And that's a trend we'll see time and time again. The marriage alliance between Tutush and the Fatimid vizier never came to pass, though. It's likely Malik Shah put pressure on his younger brother to not marry an infidel, despite the fact that he'd been willing to marry his own son to a Christian princess, Uh, but okay. Luckily for Tutush, his problems in Aleppo resolved themselves. In 1085, Sharaf ad-Dawla was killed by Suleiman ibn Qutlumush, as we covered in episode 1.11. In the face of possible conquest by Suleiman, the residents of Aleppo wrote to Malik Shah asking the Sultan to take the city. No idea why they were so unwilling to submit to Suleiman, but okay. When Malik Shah left them on red, basically not responding at all, likely because he was busy with problems elsewhere, they had no choice but to turn to Tutush. Remember that the Aleppans had invited Sharaf ad-Dawla for the sole reason of not submitting to Tutush. Now they were submitting to Tutush for the sole reason of not submitting to Suleiman. Tutush was more than happy to take Aleppo, but this sparked conflict between him and Suleiman, and Tutush ended up killing his cousin. However, surprise, surprise, after hearing that Tutush had removed Suleiman from the picture, Aleppo decided to go back on their promise to submit to him. All this back and forth really gives the impression that what was happening in Aleppo was an internal power struggle, and that various different factors within the city preferred to ally with one party or another. Anyway, Tutush was forced to once again besiege Aleppo. He finally took the city in June 1086 but he had only one month to savor this victory, because in July of the same year, news came down the pipeline. The great sultan, Malik Shah, was coming to Syria. The degree to which Tutush had been acting more or less autonomously is illustrated by the fact that the Seljuk prince did not stick around to greet his big brother. He fled to his capital, Damascus. Malik Shah's expedition into Syria was the first time a great Seljuk sultan had made his presence felt in the region since the expeditions of Val Barslan in 1070, over 15 years earlier. He was clearly concerned about the growing independence of the region and its panchant for harboring potential rivals to the title of great sultan. Not only his brother Tutush, but his cousin Suleiman had built up power bases in the region. So Malik Shah set about ensuring that the three great cities of northern Syria, Edessa, Aleppo, and Antioch, were being governed by loyal administrators. In Edessa, he left Bozan, in Aleppo, Aksungur, and in Antioch, Yagi Siyan. That last name will definitely be coming up again. Now, placing these cities under men directly loyal to him contradicted the decision to name Tutush as the ruler of all of Bilad al-Sham. It's clear Malik Shah didn't actually want his brother to rule all of Syria-Palestine. And while, as I said before, it's questionable how much he ruled, It's also clear that the great sultan could definitely take action to keep the region in check. However, he hadn't acted directly against Tutush. He hadn't taken any cities away from him or anything like that. So Tutush needed to test exactly what his brother was planning. In 1087, he wrote to Malik Shah, saying that he needed help defending Damascus from an approaching Fatimid army. He specifically stated that he needed the great sultan to order Aksungur of Aleppo and Buzan of Edessa to support him. There was no Fatimid army on the way. Tutush just wanted to see if Malik Shah would agree to place the governors of Aleppo and Edessa under his control. He soon had his answer. Malik Shah agreed, in part. He ordered Aksungur and Buzan to aid Tutush, but he didn't exactly place the two under Tutush's command. This test of Tutush's became less hypothetical when in 1089 the Fatimids actually invaded, taking multiple cities along the coast, such as Tyre, Accra, and Sidon. They even took Baalbek, north of Damascus. Still, despite Shah's commands, both Aksungur and Buzan were slow in sending aid to Tutush. It's likely they didn't want the younger Seljuk to be too successful in defending his territory. In early 1092, Tutush, Aksungur, and Buzan all traveled together to Baghdad to meet with Malik Shah. There, Malik Shah ordered Tutush to take back the lost territory in Palestine, and he ordered both Aksungur and Buzan to serve under his brother's leadership, until the deed was done. Yagi Siyan in Antioch was left out of this arrangement. However, later that year, during a siege of Tripoli, Aksungur abandoned the campaign, claiming that Malik Shah had ordered to leave Tripoli in the hands of their current rulers, The Banu Amar. The Banu Amar were a Berber dynasty from North Africa who had been appointed by the Fatimids to rule over the city. Ever since the civil war of the 1060s, they had grown more and more independent of Cairo. Still, it's likely Aksungur had been bribed by the Banu Amar ruler and that he'd made up the story about Malik Shah. When Aksungur bailed, Buzan quickly followed suit. At this moment, it's likely Tutush would have gone to his brother to complain about this betrayal. But as the siege of Tripoli was breaking up, news came that the great sultan, Malik Shah, had been poisoned and had died. The murder of Malik Shah on the 19th of November, 1092, was preceded by the murder of his grand vizier, Nizam al-Mulk, just a month earlier, on the 14th of October. And in both cases, the exact causes are still a bit of a mystery. So I'll be giving you the most common interpretations. But there are some holes in these stories. The way it goes is that Malik Shah had either ordered or allowed some of Nizam al mulks rivals to murder him. Often, the order of the assassins, who we'll be talking about next time, are pointed to as the ones who actually did the deed. If Malik Shah was involved, well, it's a tale as old as time. The great sultan had grown tired of his meddling vizier and Atabeg. It is notable that the men he placed in Syria were loyal to him, not Nizam al mulk and in fact, Aksungur was apparently one of the vizier's enemies. After Nizam al mulks death, there are two likely candidates for the murder of Malik Shah. The first is the faction that had followed the vizier, who killed the sultan in revenge. Pretty straightforward. But the second suspect is the Abbasid Caliph. That requires a bit more explanation. Now, the relationship between the Seljuks and the Abbasid Caliph had always been complicated, much like the relationship between the Pope and the Normans, or even more like the relationship between the Pope and the German Emperor. In this case, Malik Shah had ordered the Caliph to marry the great sultan's daughter, Melek Katun, and eventually the Caliph had done so. The marriage had, by all accounts, been an unhappy one, and Melek Katun had eventually left the Caliph, only to die shortly after in 1089. But before her death, she had given birth to a son, Jafar. In 1092, Malik Shah had begun pressuring his former son in law, the Caliph, to abdicate in favor of his son, the Sultan's grandson, Baby Jafar. Not too long after, Malik Shah fell ill while on a hunt and died. So you draw your conclusions. We won't be getting into the details of the post Malik Shah Seljuk Civil War because it's super confusing, and the main takeaway is just that the great Sultan will never again be able to claim any sort of dominion in Asia Minor or Syria-Palestine. For now, suffice it to say that Malik Shah's sons will engage in all manner of attempted fratricide to gain control of the empire. The more or less winner will be Malik Shah's eldest, Berke but his brother, Muhammad Tapar, will succeed in gaining de facto independence in the east and eventually overpower his brother. Now, following the death of the great sultan, Suleiman ibn Kulimush's son, Kili Jarslan, took advantage of the chaos to slip out of house arrest in Isfahan and back to Anatolia, where he set about regaining control of the Sultanate of Rum. We'll leave that thread for there now. Meanwhile, Syria-Palestine turned into an absolute clusterfuck. We're going to quickly go through about five years of over-the-top backstabbing, politicking, and carnage. Don't worry about memorizing all the names or even all the events. I'll give a little recap of how things are in 1097 at the end. Upon the death of his brother, Tutush had a strong claim to the title of great sultan. He wrote to the Agi Sion in Antioch, Aksungur in Aleppo, and Bozan in Edessa, ordering them to support his claim. And at first, they went along with it. But, before long, Aksungur and Bozan had abandoned him in favor of Berkiruk, Malik eldest son, and another contender for control of the empire, obviously. Only Yagi Sion remained loyal, and Tutush had his son Ridwan marry the Antiochian governor's daughter to cement that alliance. Meanwhile, Berkiruk sent one of his commanders, a Mamluk named Kerboga, to deal with his uncle Tutush. Kerboga joined up with Aksungur and Bozan to crush Tutush but Tutush turned out to be a bigger threat than he had planned. He killed Aksungur in battle, then captured Aleppo with both Kerboga and Bozan inside. Bozan was killed, and Tutush later waved the governor's head on a pike outside of Edessa to gain control of that city as well. However, Kerboga's life was spared. The general was left to rot in an Aleppo cell. And crucially, another survivor was Aksungur's son, Zengi. Zengi will be coming back. He's going to play a crucial role in the first stages of the Muslim reconquest and the start of the Second Crusade. But that's sometime in the future. Zengi was only 10 years old at the time. Now back in the 1090s, Tutush continued his advance towards Persia, engaging in frequent battle with his nephew Berqiruk. Until in 1095, when in combat outside the city of Rey, Tutush was defeated and decapitated apparently by one of Aksungur's old commanders. Okay, major breach in etiquette. Was this guy raised in a barn, or what? Were there no bowstrings around? Following Tutush's death, his eldest son, Ridwan, acted quickly. He seized control of Aleppo, and he had two of his younger brothers strangled. But one of them, Dukak, with the aid of his Atabeg, Toktakin, snuck out and managed to gain control of Damascus. Ridwan was furious and refused to acknowledge his little brother as ruler of shit. Thus began the conflict between Aleppo and Damascus. For the next few years, the two city-states would fight tooth and nail for control of Syria, draining their resources. Meanwhile, in Edessa, Toros, the former Roman general who'd served under our old friend Philaretos Parhamios, closed the gates of the city to the Muslims and declared himself the ruler of the city. In 1098, though, he'll be forced to ask the crusaders for help to hold on to the city. Ridwan also made two key decisions around this time. First, he released the general, Kerboga, who'd been imprisoned in Aleppo. Kerboga was still in service to Malik Shah's son, Perkiruk, and he quickly moved north to Iraq, where he could re-establish Seljuk dominion for his master. In 1096, Kerboga took the city of Mosul where he'll be when the quote-unquote great sultan, Berke sends him to deal with some Frankish invaders in Syria. Ridwan also decided to make an alliance with the Fatimids. He started to have the Friday prayers said in the honor of the Fatimid Caliph, not the Abbasid one. This religious switcheroo was likely in response to the demands of his citizens. The residents of Aleppo had long followed the Shia faith, and Ridwan probably figured he could gain support among them by doing the same. However, it had serious effects on Ridwan's relationship with the other Turkmen in the area. It caused his former Atabeg, Hussein, who governed in the city of Hymns, to break ties with Ridwan. And it also led Yagi Siyan in Antioch to prefer Ridwan's brother, Dukak of Damascus, as the rightful heir of Tutushi bin al-Barslan. With so much negative fallout, Ridwan was eventually forced to switch back to honoring the Sunni caliph instead. Though in the sources, he's often portrayed very negatively for this wishy-washiness not least because he will later on also have ties to the Nizari Ismailis, also known as the Assassins. Like I said, we'll be talking about them next time. Now, in 1097, Ridwan was preparing for another assault on his brother in Damascus, when word came that Yagisiyan needed his aid. An army of Franks was advancing on Antioch. Let's pause for a moment to survey the situation in 1097, Antioch was under the control of Yaghi Siyan, a Turkmen governor who'd been placed there by Malik Shah. He'd broken with the Seljuk sultan in Persia, Berkeruk, in favor of Tutush, and when Tutush had died, he'd been very inconsistently loyal as to which of Tutush's sons had the right to rule in Syria. These two sons, Ridwan and Dukak, based in Aleppo and Damascus respectively, hated each other, and neither one had much faith in Yaghi Siyan either. All of the smaller potentates throughout Mesopotamia, Syria, and Palestine, Arabs and former Fatimid governors included, had their own agendas. Edessa, for example, was being held hostage by some random ex-Roman general, and the city was almost entirely populated by Armenian and Syrian Christians anyway. Like Edessa, there were many other minor cities and towns throughout the region that were still majority Christian and now their residents were surreptitiously eyeing the Turkish garrisons and sharpening their knives. The Turkmen had imposed themselves on the region relatively recently, and the coming of the Franks wasn't really all that new. Oh, more guys on horses, what a surprise. Now, if the Franks had come just ten years earlier, it's not that the region would have been more united, but the force of the great Sultan Malik Shah would have bent the various emirs and Atabegs to his will and easily butchered the starved crusaders as they stumbled out of Anatolia. That's not how things worked out, though. The crusaders came at just the right time. What passed for a great sultan these days, Berkiruk, Malik Shah's son, was engaged in brutal conflict for control of the sultanate with his brother to the east. He would eventually send his general, Kerboga to fight the crusaders. But Kerboga didn't exactly have a great relationship with either of Tutush's sons, or Siyan, or really anyone in the region. We will, of course, be coming back to northern Syria and the upcoming Siege of Antioch, as well as the sneaky, sneaky strategies of Baldwin of Boulogne in Edessa. But next time, we'll be taking a look at the other Muslim power in the region. As I mentioned today, during the late 1080s, early 1090s, the Fatimid vizier, Bar al-Jamali, began to reassert control over what had once been part of the caliphate seizing the coastal properties of Accra, Tyre, and Sidon. And in 1098, while the Turkmen squabbled amongst themselves, Badr al-Jamali's son and successor, al-Afdal, managed to extend his realm even farther, taking back the third holiest city in Islam, Jerusalem. And at the same time, he sent an embassy north to meet with the Crusaders and arranged the division of Syria-Palestine into two, a northern half of the Franks and a southern half for the Fatimids. This proposal would be incontrovertibly turned down in 1099 when the Crusaders arrived outside the walls of Jerusalem, ready and willing to spill blood in order to bring their pilgrimage to an end.